My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. Then you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. We've been navigating through the Bible, and as we walk through the Bible, we've been reading kind of anchor passages that really help us understand why do we continue to invest our life and our time in reading this book and applying it. And so I switched this up a couple weeks ago because we're going through the prophets, and so we got a passage that kind of anchors us on that idea of prophecy and how God used men to write this book. And then once you get this one down, I'm going to switch it again on you. So I'm just going to warn you, I'm going to keep you off balance, just keep you guessing. All right, but let's jump in. Let's read this together. It says, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Great job. Go ahead and have a seat. I love just how this verse tells us how God is speaking through the prophets. They're not making it up. It's not their own understanding. Yes, they were involved in the process, but God spoke this to us through these men. And what we're going to see this morning is we're going to navigate not necessarily through a prophet, but almost a prophetic psalm. If you're following through the Bible, we're reading a lot of psalms right now. And one of those psalms we're going to pick out is a psalm that I could, you could almost call it a prophetic psalm. Meaning this psalm is looking forward. It's describing something that will happen. And in fact, Jesus' earliest followers, even though the psalm we're going to cover was written a thousand years before them, when they read this psalm and they saw the events that were happening around them, they applied this psalm to their situation. And I think we can do the same exact thing. I think we can take this psalm that was written 3,000 years away from us. It was applied by the New Testament church 2,000 years ago. I think we can apply it to ourselves. And where we find application for this psalm is actually during the time of political pressure. So let me just ask you a couple questions. Have you ever felt political, what I'm going to call paranoia. Political paranoia. What I mean is, is maybe some legislation got passed or a candidate got elected or there was some appointment and you were following this. I mean, you were really intent on it. 
And then it didn't happen the way that you liked. It didn't happen the way that you were hoping. And so this decision, this action happened, and it just kind of ruined you a little bit. You lost sleep over it. Maybe it affected your, your appetite. If I'm, if I'm honest with you, and I always want to be honest with you, I wouldn't call myself a highly political person. I try to stay informed. I vote. But I'll say over the last decade, there have been times where I have crossed that line and fallen into political paranoia, political fear. I think concern is important. Being active is important. We can go to the scriptures and navigate how we're supposed to do that. But there are times where we cross that line and our concern puts us in a point of fear, anxiousness. We're unsettled. We, we lose sleep. We, our, our appetite is affected. And, and if I'm honest with you, there's some legislation over the past decade that I've literally lost sleep over. Have you ever found yourself in political paranoia? And what about the other side? What about that kind of different reaction, kind of the other extreme? If political paranoia is over here, on the other extreme is kind of what I want to phrase as political ecstasy, right? Where, where something happens, a, a candidate is elected, a piece of legislation passes, a decision happens, an appointment is made, whatever it is, whatever political event you want to say, and you get to that point where it happens exactly how you were hoping it would happen, and you get so elated and you celebrate and you're excited and you are thrilled. But then you realize, like, I'm, this is a little excessive. Like, I'm doing a touchdown dance in my living room hearing this announcement. Maybe this is a little, a little much. And if I'm honest with you, I found myself there too. And, and again, I think we should care. We should be concerned. I think we should celebrate things that align with the word of God. We should applaud those things that align with the word of God. But if we take that step and cross that line and have excessive celebration, this political ecstasy, what we really show ourselves, and if I'm honest, what I've seen in myself is when I respond like that, it shows that there's an imbalance in my priorities. It really shows what I'm concerned about. When I get that thrilled and that excited and then I exert all this energy just naturally, it reminds me, wait, what is the mission of my life? Is it that this action would happen? And it could be, it could be a very good thing, a thing that should be applauded. But does my excessive celebration show that I have kind of this political ecstasy and kind of drive that I'm really gravitating towards this advancement and I'm off the priority of the mission of God. Right now, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a mission. Now, Marty did a perfect job explaining what that mission is. That mission is for us to lead others into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We want a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And we want to lead others with the growing, into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And there are sometimes that political events and actions and characters make that mission harder. There are times when legislation is passed that restrict our expression, that make it hard for us to talk, to share about Jesus. There are times where political decisions happen, and they're not friendly to our faith, friendly to our expression of that faith. How do we keep ourselves from going to those two extremes I described? Political paranoia, where we're overly worried, concerned, anxious, distraught. And how do we keep from the other extreme of political ecstasy, 
where we, we kind of show ourselves to be really concerned and wrapped up in one thing that shouldn't be the number one thing in our life. How do we do that? The psalm that we're going to cover today, the psalm that you read if you've been walking with us, Psalm 2, I think answers that question. How can we make sure that we don't go to these two extremes? In fact, the New Testament church, Jesus' first century followers, the moment Jesus leaves, gives them the mission They experience opposition. They experience some political events that really make their job harder, make that mission harder to fulfill. And they quote this psalm that we're going to read to give them courage as they face political pressure. So let's jump in. Psalms chapter 2. And here's what we're going to realize. Psalms 2 is a wonderful little story and narrative. David paints this beautiful, beautiful picture of these kind of kings that are rebelling against God. And they're shaking their fist at God. And they're plotting and they're scheming and they're doing all these things. And God's response to all of this is to laugh. He finds it humorous. Like, what are you doing? You're going to try to outflank me, I'm omnipresent. Like, how's that going to work out for you, right? You're going to try to nuke heaven? I'm omnipotent, right? I'm all-powerful. God finds almost a sense of entertainment from just the vain planning of man to apply pressure to God and to his mission. He laughs at this. So this is the big idea for today. If you're only going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. If you're only going to take one note, I want you to take this note. And that's this. If God laughs, don't worry. If God laughs, if political pressure and advancement and movement and all these things, if God laughs at those that try to hurt his mission, if he laughs at it, then what should we do? We should stop worrying. Stop worrying. Stop become so paranoid about it. Yes, be concerned, be active, be all those things. But don't act like there's not somebody on the throne of heaven who's in control of everything and who has a mission. And I think what we'll find in the psalm is if we stay on mission, we'll keep ourselves from political ecstasy. And if we understand that God will complete his mission, he has the strength to complete his mission. He has an objective in this universe and he has the power to complete it. If we rest and trust that his mission will be done, then we're not going to worry. Maybe we'll laugh with God and we'll keep running for him. Let me show you this. Psalms chapter 2. If Psalms chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 1. If you brought your Bible to service, but you're not yet able to navigate through the different books, it's really easy to find Psalms. Just divide in the middle, you're going to hit Psalms, and you'll be right there. Okay, Psalms chapter 2. Okay, let's just start as, as David just gives this kind of poetic description of this somewhat war that is trying to be waged against God. Look at verse 1. Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together. It's almost like you could see the advancement, right? For some reason when I read this, I think of the game Risk, right? You're putting all your little players together and you've got your cavalry and all this different. You got everything set up. And all these great military minds and strategists are putting pieces together. What are we going to do first? How are we going to advance the assault? What defenses do we need? All this stuff, right? They've done all the kind of military calculations. And who are they coming against? All right, look, there, look at their banner. Their banner statement of here's why we're fighting this fight. It says they're fighting against 
the Lord. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, these are the kings, and free ourselves from slavery to God. That's pretty strong words, right? We shouldn't read past those. What's being described here? God is being described as a tyrant. He's chaining his people, putting them in shackles. They are his slaves, is the idea that the kings see when they look at their situation. God is a tyrant. God is an oppressor. We need to be liberated from him. Right? He, he is destroying our joy. We won't find happiness if we trust ourselves to him. He is a cruel taskmaster. And he's seeking to hurt us and to use us as tools for his plan. That's the idea. Very strong language. If you think back last week, when the prophet Hosea was describing God's leading to us, he uses such different terminology. He doesn't use the terminology of chains and of slavery. If you remember back, Hosea chapter 11, Hosea said that God leads his people with a cord of kindness. Much different than the chains of slavery, right? Cords of kindness. Now what's implied there? There's a cord. God is the one in front. God is the one leading. Yes, God makes rules. God gives instructions. God gives laws. They're there. But God is not a tyrant seeking to kill our joy. These guidelines, these rules, these instructions, this design he's given to every area of our life is not meant to prevent joy, but to protect our joy. But these guys don't see that. You could almost think of it like this, like God is, is this kind of cosmic conductor, right? And he is waving his wand in every single instrument, if it follows his instruction, will create this beautiful harmony of glory. This beautiful mosaic where there's all these individual little pieces of different color and different shape and different skill. But if we follow the cosmic conductor, we will create this beautiful song that resonates throughout the universe. That's what God is. Right? But sin and rebellion are like a cavalier clarinet player. Right? Just standing in the middle of the orchestra pit and just blowing out their own nose. You know? And, and, and to not follow the wave of the wand, to not follow, to, to, to rebel, to say, no, I've got a better song. I'm the only one who can be trusted to make a good song. What ends up happening, this rogue kind of player here is actually hurting themselves, hurting those around them. That's what sin is. But these kings don't see it. They believe the only way for them to find joy, fulfillment, and happiness is to trust in their own authority. I know what's best for me. I can get it. God is my oppressor. Wow. Well, what's God's response to this scheming, to this plotting, to this plan? He sees all the different risk pieces on the table. He sees what they're trying to do, how they're trying to outflank him. What's God's response? Look at, oh, my Bible's upside down. Look at verse four. That was actually pretty smooth. Did you see how I spun around there? Cirque du Soleil, watch out. Verse 4, but the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. 
Then in anger he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, on my holy mountain. God laughs. Now, I'm a little, I don't know, maybe sarcastic or I don't know what would it be called. It's almost like God's like, ooh, wow, that's a good move. Oh, what am I going to do there, you know? (laughs) Oh, you took out my communications? Oh, no, you know? Oh, you're advancing here? What are we going to do, you know? Michael, the Eastern Front, what are we going to do about that? No, he looks at it and he's like, guys, what are you doing? Right? I'm like a 747 and you're a butterfly. If I want to go this way, you're not stopping me. Now, I don't know if that illustration works. I don't know if butterflies get to that altitude as a 747, but whatever. Do the research later. Google it. Okay? But think about it. That's how kind of futile it is. Just ridiculously futile it is. No matter how hard that butterfly flaps its wings, that 747 is going. There's no stopping it. This is what God is saying here. You can't stop me. And what does God say? I made my choice. I put my king on the holy mountain. Notice how God didn't wait for this king to get the right amount of electoral votes. Right? He wasn't waiting for the people. Nowhere in this psalm are you going to see God's appeal to his people to make his plan happen. Nowhere are you going to see that. God is not dependent. God is not like wringing his hands. What am I going to do? My Twitter feed is not getting enough followers. No, no. He just says, I made my choice. There's one electoral vote. Mine. I've made my choice and I've set my king on my mountain, my holy hill. Now, this is a coronation psalm. What that means is a coronation psalm is a psalm that would be used as a new king was coming into power. So a new king in Israel or Judah would have a ceremony and have language like this. And during part of that ceremony, what was normal is that the king would read kind of the decrees of God. He would kind of read promises that God was making to him as a king. And that's where we move now in our scene. It's not the the rebellious king's acting. It's not God talking. Right now, what the king is going to do, God's chosen king on his holy hill, will now read the decrees. Here's what God has promised to give to me. And look at what God is going to give his king. I've made my choice. Now here's the promise I make to my chosen king. Look what he says to him. Verse 7. This is the king reading the document. Verse 7, the king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you're my son. Today I become your father. Wow. This king is not just the direct report of God. This This isn't an org chart. This is familial language. Your family. You are my son. I love you. You represent me. And look at the gifts he gives to his son. Verse 8. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. The whole earth as your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and smash them like clay pots. Well now it's no wonder why it says that God will terrify these rebellious kings with his fury. Notice in the psalm God didn't make a direct threat towards them. What did God do? God made an announcement. And what was his announcement? Here's my king. Here's my royal son. And I'm going to give him everything. 
Now think about if the rebellious kings heard that. What does that mean? If he's going to give them the earth, what does that mean? That means their land is included. Right? This is imminent domain. This is, well, omnipotent domain. God's just coming and say, that's mine, and I'm giving it to my son. No wonder they're terrified. No wonder they feel challenged. Notice how God, again, is not asking for assistance. I've made my choice. Here's my king. And I will give him the nations. See, this is what keeps us from political ecstasy. Overt celebration about what we feel are certain advancements. We realize what is God's mission? That his king and his kingdom will come. And nothing is stopping that. And that's a mission we either enjoy We go after, we take part in, but he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need a campaign office. He's not asking you, oh, please join. I don't know if I've got the numbers. He has the number. One, his. And he is going to advance this kingdom. Now, it doesn't stop here, right? It says that with an iron rod, this king will rule and he will smash those who rebel against him like clay pots. The idea there is that this king has strength and power. He will rule justly, right? Iron is intrinsically strong. A clay pot is intrinsically fragile. If an iron rod were to smash a clay pot, it just turned to dust. The idea is that this king will rule. There is no stopping him. But the psalm doesn't end there. This king, after reading the decrees, this is what God has promised me. That I will have a kingdom that encompasses the entire globe. Then this king almost turns, if you will, and he looks at the rebellious kings. Those that have been scheming and plotting against God and him. And he invites them, hey, come in. Come into my kingdom. Right, look what he says to the kings. I'm in verse 10. Now then, you kings, this is God's king speaking to the rebellious kings. Act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son, that's him, or he will become angry. And you will be destroyed in the midst of all your activities, for his anger flares up in an instant. But what joy for all who take refuge in him. What is he promising to them? The very end. He promises them what? Come. Come. Sit under my kingdom. Sit under my rule. I'm not a tyrant. I'm not a slave owner. I'm not a taskmaster. I will lead you. I will guide you and direct you. But what you will find under my guidance, what you'll find when you submit to me is peace and prosperity. I designed you for communion with me, to sit under me, not above me, and not equal with me, but under me. But under me you will find great blessing you will receive joy it says and refuge notice how the invitation is given even though these kings have already been scheming against him when we read those the the, those words and it says that God will destroy in the midst of their activities his anger will flare up in an instant you don't want to read that language as if God is some toddler throwing a tantrum right you took his toy now he's going to throw a lego at your head Right? He's just out of control. He's overwhelmed. He can't contain his rage and his anger. So he just lashes out. That's not the right way to read this psalm. 
Not only in the context of the Bible do we know that's not who God is, but the context of the psalm. Because if God was just some toddler throwing a holy tantrum, he would have destroyed the guys in the beginning. In verses 1 through 3, when they were plotting and planning and trying to go against him, he would just said, nope, you're done. But he doesn't do that. He tells him, hey, here's my plan. Here's my king. His kingdom will come. You can't stop it. I invite you to come in. And that opportunity is there, but it's not there forever. Because to reject the son and his invitation, to reject the royal son of God, then yes, consequence will come. And the idea of in an instant means this. It's not, again, that God is ill-tempered or he can't contain himself or control himself. It's not to present God as out of control. The idea is when God wants to move, you can't stop him. There'll be no delay. Once he's decided it's time to close the door, it's over. At that point, there's nothing you can do to cause him to recoil. If he's decided to advance, nothing gets in his way. This is the psalm that the New Testament church is going to hold on to. Because they're going to experience some oppression. They're going to experience a time where they're under political opposition. Right, their movement, let me give you the background, their movement has kind of just started. Jesus was teaching for a long time. He died a horrible death. But then he came back to life. And as resurrected, he showed himself to his first century followers. And he said, look, this is what I did. I did this for the forgiveness of your sin and the transformation of your life to be restored back to God. Yes, it looked like all the schemes of men were going in one direction, but God used those schemes to fulfill his plan. I was a sacrifice. I wasn't murdered. I was sacrificed under the wrath of God to forgive you of your sins. And now I'm here. Now go tell everybody. So these guys named Peter and John are one of the closest followers of Jesus Christ. They just start telling people. like They cannot stop. Right? All of their posts, all of their stuff, it's just on one feed over and over and over again. Resurrection, 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 resurrection. They just can't stop talking. Well, the authorities that killed Jesus, they don't like this. Specifically, in our passage, we're going to see the Sadducees. They kind of start this, but then other religious groups, or Jewish religious groups, who have some political authority, they get in on the mix. And they start to oppose Peter and John. Now, think of this for Peter and John. They just saw these Jewish authorities bend the Romans to kill Jesus. It was the political pressure of the Jewish religious authorities that made Rome kill Jesus. Really, they were were the ones with the intent. The blood was on their hands. Really, the Romans were just a tool. And now, Peter and John may be staring at some of the same exact faces that Jesus stared at during his trial. And these guys come up to Peter and John and they say, stop it. Stop talking about Jesus. We're done with this. No more. Quit it. That's some political pressure there. And Peter and John say, nope. Can't do it. Then they go back to their brothers. Like they go to church, they go to their small group, however they were formulated, right? They come back and they're like, guys, you're not going to believe what happened. Remember the guys who killed our master? They're coming at us now. What are we going to do? And so they tell them the story and then a prayer meeting breaks out. And during this prayer, do you know what they pray? Psalms 2. This ancient psalm written a thousand years ago 
about how God laughs at those who try to foil his plans. How God finds it humorous. He finds it hilarious. He's almost delighted by their schemes because he's going to come in and run that over. Because there is no stopping his king. There is no stopping his kingdom. Let me show you this. Jump to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. I've given you a little bit of the background, but I want to read kind of a good section of the verses here. And I want you to try to, with the backdrop of what I've already kind of communicated, watch how these guys respond to political pressure. And think to yourself, do they fall victim to political paranoia? Are they stricken with, with kind of just paralysis? They can't move. They can't talk. They can't proclaim. Things aren't easy. We're not getting favorable legislation. We're not getting kind candidates. We're, things aren't easy in moving Jesus into the public sphere. Things are hard. Don't we have these questions at times? Look at their response. It's incredible. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers, and they told them what the leading priests and elders had said. And when they heard this report, all the believers lifted their voice together in prayer to God. Now, I don't know if they prayed in unison. I don't know how it worked. If one guy kind of led or one gal kind of led, I don't know how it happened. But the idea here is the description of the prayer meeting is summarized right here in this prayer. And look at how they pray. And just think of Psalms too. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancient, our ancestor David. Your servant saying, here's our psalm. Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth are prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. The same word we read in Psalm 2, anointed one, same idea here. They're looking back a thousand years ago and they're saying, hold on a second. We know how this story ends. We know how this thing works. We've seen this. We know this. We know God has a king and that kingdom is only advancing and not retreating. We know there's no stopping God. We know the plans of man are futile against him and God doesn't need our assistance. We know that he is independently bringing about his kingdom. He laughs at these guys. So why are we worried? Right, look at how they respond. They take Psalm 2 and say, we have seen this in the crucifixion of Jesus. Look at verse 27. In fact, this has happened here. In this very city. Psalm 2 happened here. In this very city. For Herod Antipas and Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles and the people of Israel, united against Jesus. What is he doing there? These are the kings. The rebellious kings in verses 1 through 3 who plot against God. He says it's the Gentiles, the people of Israel, Herod, Pilate. These are all the ones scheming against God. We're going to overthrow him. We're going to take him out. We're going to roll in deep. We're going to pop the trunk. Some of you know what all that kind of phrases means. But I'm like, I don't know. Why are we popping the trunk? Okay, that's where the guns are. Jeez, come on. Watch a movie. Anyways, verse 27. Okay, against your holy servant, against your anointed. Verse 28. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. I love this. This It's just hilarious. God foresaw all of their scheming. It's almost like he's sitting back and he's like, oh, wow, good plan. What are we going to do with that? Their scheming was so futile. Why? God saw before it ever happened and then he just used it to fulfill his purpose. Isn't that great? 
They've seen this in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It is futile to go against the plan of God. His chosen king is on the throne, expanding his kingdom. You can't stop him. Now they kind of apply it to themselves. And look at how they pray. Look at how this informs their prayer. Verse 29. Now, Lord, now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after this prayer, the meeting place shook and they're all filled with the spirit. And then they preached the word of God with boldness. I love this prayer. I love how balanced this prayer is. Are they concerned? Sure. What do they say? Hey, um, God, can you be mindful of these threats? I don't know if you've seen these, but here they are. They're coming after us. Be mindful of it. Are they concerned about their political pressure? Sure. But they're so on mission. They're not distracted with, oh no, maybe if we get a favorable politician in place, we'll be okay. Maybe if we get more friendly legislation, we'll be okay. Maybe if they allow us to be a little more expressive in our religious views. Maybe if the public schools will just teach what this book teaches. Or maybe they'll just teach something friendly. Or maybe they'll teach something that we don't have to deconstruct when our kids get back to school. Maybe if things would just be a little bit easier, then the mission would be great. No, they're already on mission. They're not waiting for it to get easy. They're not waiting for it to be friendly. They're not obsessing about, I don't know if this is going to work, if this isn't land in our favor. They're not caught up in political ecstasy, but they're also not caught up in political paranoia. They have concern. God, would you be mindful of these threats? Father, can we bring these to you? We're, we're concerned that the men who killed your son are now after us. But what else do they pray for? They pray for what, I'll be honest, I often don't pray for. Right, because often my prayers, right, I'm just going to be honest with you, my prayers are often, God, remove this difficulty. Right, do you find yourself praying like that? And that's okay. Acts chapter 4, they pray like that. Will you be mindful of their threats, Lord? It's okay to pray for difficulties to be removed. But what else do they pray for? Grant us boldness. If you don't take the difficulty away, give me endurance and a loud mouth. Give me boldness. And let me fast forward. Let me be a spoiler here for a moment. God only answers one of those prayers in this chapter. Only one of them. You know what prayer he answers? Boldness, not deliverance. In fact, the next two occasions where we see the great leaders of the first century church the next story of a great leader is by the, a guy by the name of Peter. What happens to him? He gets arrested. The next story is the martyrdom of Stephen. He gets stoned. Now, not that kind of stoned, okay? Not 21st century Portland stoned, okay? That's not what I'm saying, okay? Stoned as in rocks hurled at his head until he's dead. That's what I mean. So did God grant deliverance? No. Did he grant boldness? Yes. Okay, I tried this first service. It didn't work out so well, but you're my favorite service. And if you're re-watching, join this service and you'll be my favorite. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Here's what I'd like to do. I would like your permission. Can I challenge you? Yeah, first service did way better, right, Michael? Right? Okay, let me try again. I want to ask your permission can I challenge you? Yes. Okay, that was a lot better. 
One lady in first service said no. <laughs> I was like, well, this is awkward. What do we do now? Are you leaving or am I leaving? <laughs> no, what she meant was no, go ahead and challenge me. That's what she meant. Okay. Now I'm challenging myself here too. I want to challenge you to pray like they prayed in Acts chapter 4. I want to challenge you to pray. Not that just God will remove the difficulty, and I think it's totally fair for you to pray that. I do. I want you to hear that. What I'm asking you and challenging you to do is to add on to your prayer of deliverance, endurance, and boldness. Following Jesus is hard. That's why Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus didn't say, take up your pillow and follow me. It's going to be comfortable. You ready for night-night? No, he didn't do that. (laughs) Right? He said, take up your cross and follow me. Cross is an instrument of death, pain, discomfort. Those are all implied in our movement in following Jesus. And if I'm honest, what I pray for, first and foremost, is God, give me a lighter cross. And is it fair for us to pray that? Yes. But we shouldn't only pray that. And here's where my challenge is. I think we, we can't just pray for a lighter cross. We need to pray for a stronger back. If it's harder to share your faith, harder for you to live as a faithful Christian in this world, that's expected. We weren't guaranteed it'd be easy. Remember, they killed the guy who started the movement. Why would we, why would we anticipate anything could be less? But we know how this mission has moved forward. It's not by political advantageous legislation. No. What is it by? Sacrificial living. Dying for the other. Serving the other, breaking, right? Having our hearts broken with empathy for those who are the least, the last, and the lost. We're the first ones to serve, the first ones to sacrifice, the first one to realign ourselves to others and to take on whatever weight that calls of us. And sometimes that's a heavier cross. So what do we need? A stronger back. So here's my challenge to you starting tomorrow, Monday morning, and going all the way to Sunday morning. So every morning, I want you to pray a simple prayer. Very simple. Father, whatever today brings, give me a stronger back. Father, whatever today brings, give me a stronger back. I don't know what tomorrow, five years, ten years, means for us. And as we follow Jesus, I don't know how hard it's going to be for your children to follow Jesus. But I do believe that God will answer the prayer, give me a stronger back, even if my cross doesn't get lighter. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I'm so thankful and so encouraged that the New Testament church would pray such a radical prayer. I mean, how bold and just how radical and reckless is the prayer. Give us boldness. This was their problem though. This is what put them in dangerous way. This would put the scope of uh, a persecution right on them. This is what gave them all that attention from the religious authorities to oppress them was because they were so bold and they just asked for more of it. But they were so in line with your mission, so caught up in the priority of your king's kingdom coming.
kingdom that cannot be stopped so we don't need to worry. And a kingdom that should take over our lives so our celebration should be in its advancement and not anything else. Father, align us right with your will, with your plan, with your mission. Father, let us see submission to this king as something delightful, something beautiful, something for us. And let us give our lives for it. Oh, Father, what can you do? What can you do with a church that prays for stronger backs and not just lighter crosses? How does that please you? How does that move your heart? Your son did not take a lighter cross, but the heaviest of crosses. But oh, what a strong back. Father, give us strong backs because it's hard to carry our cross. Lift us up with your strength. Move us with your power and do with us what you would will. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.